Hello and welcome to the Vinyl Sideways podcast, diving deep into a discography one side at a time. I'm Al and with me is Jerry. For our first series of episodes, we've been going through the catalog of the legendary English progressive rock band Pink Floyd. For this episode, we'll be discussing the band's seventh album, Obscured by Clouds. Uh, Jerry, I feel um, I feel like this album. I feel like this is one that you're you've been excited to talk about uh, for a while. I can sort of I, I feel like you're anticipating this one. Um, this is a good little um, hidden hidden gem in the discography. I don't think a lot of casual Pink Floyd listeners know much about this album or listen to it frequently. I know I'm kind of guilty of that, uh, uh, but when I do listen to it, I'm I'm pleasantly surprised at how strong of an album this is this is one of my and i probably said this already a lot certainly when it comes to songs but as an album itself it's one of my favorite albums like many people uh including yourself it's was at the time largely unknown or uh discarded uh kind of overwhelmed in the enormous success of dark side of the moon I really did not hear about this album, although I had heard one or two songs on radio uh, when I was very young. Uh, but I really did not hear about this album until I went off to college and I had a French roommate who had a copy of the album. And at the time, for me, it was, oh yeah, I vaguely remember that this album existed. Let's listen to it. And I was blown away. I mean, not blown away like echoes on metal but really pleasantly surprised there was a lot of very very i thought good songs and great musical moments and it's uh when you think about it it's uh, the songs are only uh three to four minutes i think there's one track that goes five minutes uh and it's very accessible in that respect it's you're not being set up for a, a long uh, psychedelic freak out or anything like that it's it's I'm not gonna say it's radio friendly because certainly at the time it, it did not have a lot of pop rock sensibilities although there is that there to some extent but it is very accessible in that respect you can put it on and listen to it the song comes and the song goes and what happens over the course of the song is definitely Pink Floyd and there's a lot to appreciate about it. Yeah, I think uh, it, it might be somewhat discounted because it is a soundtrack. It's um, it's you know a soundtrack album, a group of songs written and performed specifically for a movie. Uh, you know, you one would tend to think that the band wouldn't put much effort or much thought into the material. Um, and while you know the story goes, they were already into the recording or at least into the pre-production process of uh, what would become Dark Side of the Moon, uh, the band took uh, a few weeks out of that schedule to go and and put this material together for the soundtrack for the movie. Um, it's still strong material. It's still musically very strong um, and definitely has that Dark Side flavor to it. If you're a fan of Dark Side of the Moon, this is a great... Um, alternative or or sort of a second listen uh, to get more of that sound uh, out of out of your listening experience um, so I think you know just based on that that they're they're already a, 
into the process of making what would become one of the landmark albums, not only of their career, but of, you know, rock history. Um, this material being born out of that same time period uh, makes it easy to listen to. Um, you're right, the songs are short, shorter, short by Pink Floyd standards anyway. Uh, so there's a lot of songs. There's there's 10 songs on the album. There's a lot of material to, to go through. Um, and I, I think the other thing that really stands out for me is, is the instrumentation on this album. Um, from the first track all the way through the last, you've got a couple of, of things that are are going to become signature pieces of the Pink Floyd sound. You've got um, an emphasis uh, of the, is it the VCS3 synthesizer uh, making its uh, its way into the sound. You've got David Gilmore in the Black Strat uh, all over this album, and they're introducing some slide guitar work that would become uh, very much a signature sound for Pink Floyd in, in, in the coming album. So there's a lot here that is familiar, if not, you know, the songs themselves not being familiar. I think you're right that, you know, radio stations would, would play maybe one or two tracks, but it's not anything that you hear frequently anymore on the radio unless you're listening to a cool radio station or, you know, a college station or something. Um, you're not going to hear much of, of Obscured by Clouds in the mainstream. Yeah, it certainly wasn't at the time uh, getting radio play or anything like that. I mean, like I said, I remembered a couple of cuts coming across the radio. And at the time, I did not even realize it was Pink Floyd. Of course, I was a little kid back in the early 1970s, in 1972, uh, when this came out. But I remember later on, when I listened to it, uh, like seven, eight years later, that going, I think I've heard this song before, and not just because I'm familiar with Pink Floyd, but uh, I definitely remember hearing this song before and had to think real long and hard about it and couldn't remember the station it was on, but I don't think it was a rock and roll station. And it was, it was one of the softer songs, certainly, that's on this album. What stands out to me just on a production standpoint is the fact that, at least according to the research, that I was able to come across regarding the production was it was a quick recording. They did this in a few weeks. How much of the material they had sitting around and were able to craft into the the pieces, the tracks that actually ended up on the album, I don't know. But they did the production on this in a couple of weeks, and for this many songs by this band, uh, all, all within their a very succinct uh, length lengths of time uh, and with this quality I mean there really isn't a dud on this album obviously some tracks are better than others but there isn't a dud in there there isn't anything in there that I listen to and go oh god that that sucks or why the hell they put that on there uh, everything is really nice they're they're great songs and and you can they almost make it look easy in terms of the time they took to put this down. There's good quality on the songs. I like the mixes on them. You can tell that it's certainly not uh, the tremendous technical achievement uh, that Dark Side of the Moon was go going to be. But, you know, obviously very different album. This was a soundtrack for the film. The film, by the way, um, was called Le Valley, 
Um, I can't remember the name of the director, but it's the same guy who directed more. It's uh, Bar- uh, Barbe Schroeder. That's right. Thank you. Um, Schroeder did more that Pink Floyd also did the soundtrack to. So this is a soundtrack for La Vallée. And without going deep into a description of the movie itself that this album is a soundtrack for, a very, very loose thumbnail description of Europeans on a spiritual journey in Borneo uh, and dealing with the wild natives and the wild country and different cultures and... Uh, you know, it's. Uh, I did not watch the movie. I, I looked at the trailer and uh, was not really particularly engaged. Maybe I'll watch it someday, but you know, my point was to talk about Pink Floyd as opposed to making this about a film or anything like that. But it just uh, the movie itself, I think, is kind of inconsequential, at least in terms of what we're talking about. But yet, it's it's good to at least to mention the film because uh, that's what this soundtrack was for. It was for this film. Yeah, and, um, you know, I, I, I too skipped over watching the film. Um, I read something. There's there the main character. She goes in search of rare feathers to bring back for, uh, to, to make stuff out of and sell. And I, I watched the trailer like you did and, and didn't come away feeling I had to watch the film. Back when we did our... Uh, episode on more um i had heard the album before and felt that well let me give the movie a shot and see how the the music connects to the film and in in that instance i i felt that helped my appreciation of that album uh if I, i i then had some sort of visual cues to help connect the the music to the movie um, and it led to a little bit of a greater appreciation. I didn't feel I had to do that with Obscured by Clouds because I like the music on its own for what it is. Um, and I, you know, it's kind of one of those things where I feel like if I ever watched the film, which I don't, I don't suspect I will ever do, but if I ever did, I would be watching it, and as the music would come on, I would think to myself, oh, hey, there's that, there's that Pink Floyd song that I like. <laughs> When I watched the trailer, uh, the, what stood out to me, or something that I made note of in any case, was is uh, you have these lush shots of, of uh, Southeast Asian jungle and, of course, uh, local natives and looking for feathers and Europeans off on the spiritual quest. It seemed significantly more engaging when the Pink Floyd was playing in the background. Otherwise, this movie's been, I'm not going to say been done to death, you know, Europeans on the spiritual quest, but certainly in terms of 1972 when this movie came out, that was a pretty common theme. And at one point when I was doing my research on this, I started laughing because I realized in the course of it, there's a uh, film called The Gira, The Wrath of God, which is a, a German film by uh, Werner Herzog, which is a great film and uh, totally different from La Vallée, except it's Europeans kind of on a spiritual quest. Actually, it's conquistadors looking for uh, the uh, city of gold. But uh, without going deep into that film, that's, uh, like I said, it's a great film, but they're in the lush jungle wilderness being confronted by natives on their quest 
and then I started laughing even harder because when you think about it, Deliverance, also in 1972, <laughs> kind of followed that same uh, uh, line as well. I mean, you had these guys who were out on a kind of their own spiritual quest, and they ran afoul of the local natives, and you know, the movie got very, very disturbing. Uh, so that was kind of a thing, I guess, in the second half of 1972. Um, and and what, just what Lavallee had started. that the others didn't have was a Pink Floyd soundtrack to go underneath it all. Yeah, right. Uh, not so much dueling banjos or anything no. like that. Although there was a uh, link to that, a notable, almost a country western song, country western guitar sound to uh, to this some of the songs in this album. You know, kind of an Eagles flair to it. Uh, I think it had a lot to do with how Gilmore was playing, but there was definitely some twangy guitar being used to good effect, but there was definitely some twangy guitar on this album, on some of the songs. Yeah, uh, David Gilmore is is all over this album, and when we get into the track by track, we'll uh, we'll definitely pick up on that. But that was that was one thing I, I noticed um, that this is uh, this is very much Gilmore's album, at least musically, instrumentally, and vocally. I know the lyrics, uh, Rogers contributing lyrics, and they're all contributing songwriting. But but this is uh, you know if you weren't paying attention to the liner notes and you weren't looking up who was doing what on this album, you would you would suspect David Gilmore is the leader of this group. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. He's really stretched out into. Uh, a band member who is contributing and filling his space as one of the four members of the band. He takes control of songs. His guitar is a vital part of the songs, whether it's playing melody or accenting melodies played by uh, Rick Wright. Uh, He is really in the middle of not every song, but he's certainly there. And uh, his guitar is recognizable, even when it starts getting kind of country-western twanging, which is not to say any of these songs are country-western, because they're not. These are all uh, immediately recognizable as as Pink Floyd, Uh, certainly from Gilmore singing when he sings, but more so from his guitar. His distinct guitar sound is becoming foundational to how Pink Floyd comes across in this album, and certainly to albums going forward after this. Uh, would you uh, would you like to start going into the tracks um, individually? You want to talk about uh, the opening track, which is uh, the title song, "Obscured by Clouds." Yeah, I think that's uh, that's worthwhile. We I think there's no more to be said about the movie itself uh, or. Uh, the album itself as a whole, although I'm sure we'll talk about that more, uh, the album itself as this uh, program goes on. But uh, yeah, let's start with the title track, Obscured by Clouds. Uh, It's an instrumental piece. uh, It was written by Waters and Gilmore. Um, notable to me was it starts out with a, a heartbeat rhythm. It's kind of pre-Dark Side, but uh, it, it's definitely, and it's not the exact same rhythm 
uh, not the exact same heartbeat sound per se, but it's definitely that uh, metronomic thump, and uh, which they used again, and you know, that's fine. It's a it's a great opening piece. Um, I liked it. Uh, it was well. Let's see what else. Uh, synthesizer is definitely a growing. Uh, instrument and growing tool for the band. Uh, Gilmore is bluesy with it. Uh, you know, it's uh, when this when this song begins, just the thrum of the synthesizer and uh, Nick Mason's at first very simple heartbeat, keeping time as this goes forward. Is uh, you know you're listening to a, a Pink Floyd album. It's uh, and Mason was playing electronic drums, by the way, uh, on this cut. Uh, but Rick's keys are ominous, and there's a foreboding drone to it for David to start stabbing guitar notes at it. And it's uh, you know I remember when I first heard this back in the uh, the early 1980s that my I started to get tingles on my back and up my neck because it's uh, a very cool and you're about to go off on a journey. Uh, at least you get that impression. And the journey isn't what you would expect, but in many ways it is. And uh, it gets better and better. But it starts very well with Obscured by Clouds. Yeah, this is another example of an opening track on a Pink Floyd album doing a really good job at... Uh, uh, setting a mood and getting a listener engaged from the very beginning. Um, the the main sort of the main flavor of the song for me is that synthesizer, that VC VCS three synthesizer. Which uh, if you if you look those up, if you look up circa nineteen seventy two uh, V VCS three uh, synthesizers, there's these these little uh, consoles. And I, I hesitate to even say little. They're about the size of a large laptop computer I would say and you've got um, a bunch of knobs and things to play with on there and you get these these droning sounds that you can oscillate and uh, move the pitch and do all kinds of crazy stuff with to get a sound that you're looking for um, and it's it's an instrument that Rick Wright purchased um, you know pr- you know prior to making this album and one that he would used to great effect for the next uh, several albums. It does a really good job of painting um, a mood in the background, which which Rich, which Rick has done uh, throughout the the catalog so far. Up till now, he's been using organ and piano and uh, and keyboards to to get that effect. But here, he's got a new tool to play with, a new toy to play with, and um, it's got a, it's a great, very moody sound and it it's got that like you said that heartbeat thumping in the background of of nick keeping time but um almost a a phil collins-esque sounding electronic drum pattern of some kind or sample that kind of permeates underneath it that kind of keeps it from from growing just a little bit too stale it kind of keeps a little bit of interest in there um what that does for the first you know several seconds it kind of gets you into this sort of zen sort of trance and then all of a sudden here comes david with his his what i, I call them their little stabby guitar solos they kind of pierce through all that drone 
and give a little bit of uh, humanity to what you're listening to. It's very robotic, very machine-like, and that's, uh, again, something that Pink Floyd will, will continue to develop uh, over the next several albums. But you're hearing it here, um, a bit of humanity mixed in with the, the automatic or the robotic uh, artificialness of, of that synthesizer. I really like the sound of it. I really like how it's used, not only on this track, but throughout the album. Um, I'm glad Rick found it. I'm glad they're they're using it because it's a really it's a really cool sound. It's very it very much uh, gives the album its its tone and flavor right from the get go. Yeah, I think what impresses me, certainly with his opening cut, but specific to Rick Wright's uh, part of it is there is a you get this new toy, this new instrument, which has an an almost infinite amount of variation you could put into it. He never goes nuts with it. Obviously, editorializing, they would not let him go nuts with it. You do that in when rehearsal or practice or whatever, or when you're knocking out the song. But they never lean on this, the, the, the synthesizer, to be the song per se, uh, at least on this track or, or on this album. It's there as a mood enhancer, uh, to influence the song, and it's one of those less is more sort of things. It gives a great bed for David Gilmour to do his stabby guitar, and uh, that was my thought of it as well, listening to this album again, that, uh, boy, he's really twanging those things. He's just going to the, to the heart of the note and just cutting into it very sharp and very hard. And uh, the synthesizer beds that Rick is creating on this song and others is used to very, very good effect. And uh, it's an editorial choice they made at the time uh, that paid off, certainly in terms of, you know, at no point are you going, oh, my God, guys, just cut it out with that. You know, you got a new toy, go for it. It's just become part of his quiver of tools that he can use to make music great effect and uh, it's a very very strong opening piece and it sets up the listener for more to come and uh, i like it a lot yeah chills up the spine i I like that you say that it's you know it's a restrained use not to say that it's um that he's holding back but that he is using it to service the song they're not just using it just because it's there um, I think a lot of the tracks that we've listened to so far on, and, and discussed on this podcast um, that we haven't liked as much, that we've sort of acknowledged exist, and it's great that they performed and recorded some of these tracks in the past. We've always dismissed them as experimental. Um, you know, these, these, Those were the experiments that didn't quite work out. Um, whatever it may be, the sound collages or the, the more freak-out kind of songs. Um, having a dog <laughs> sing along to a song on the last album. This is uh, this is an example where they're you know they're using something new to experiment and to to play with and incorporate into their sound. Uh, the difference here is that it really does work. It's it's not um, it, it's it, this is nothing you can dismiss as oh they were just experimenting. This is they've they've experimented with this device, with the synthesizer, and they found a way to make it work with their sound, and it would become a part of their sound for the next several albums. Um, 
And I, I think that's a testament to, you know, sort of where the band is at this point. They've they've done a lot of that experimentation. They've they've had several albums where they've gone into the studio and just sort of played around and came up with sound and said, Yeah, let's put that out and see how it see what sticks. Um, I think they're they're getting to the point where they're getting past that by by this point in their career. Um, what was he? Uh, uh, Piper was 1967, correct? So this is five years in to their recording. Correct. To their, four to five years. Yeah, four to five years into their recording career, and they're professionals by now. They know what's worked and what hasn't in the past, and um, you can definitely feel that experience uh, uh, benefiting them. And I think this is a great case in that we've got this new thing, we're going to play with it, but we're going to make it work with the music that we create. Well, I think part of that had to do with, at least in this case here, was time constraints, at least the space of time they had to work with, talking more broadly again about the album, that, uh, as mentioned before, they they did this very quickly. Certainly, they did it at lightning speed compared to other albums to come, uh, but they did this very quickly, but still were able to put out a very cohesive album in terms of the the songs themselves were for the for the uh, the movie and they gave the director a wide range or widest range of Pink Floyd material to work with and all in their 3 to 5 minute range or 3 to 4 minute for almost the entire part and uh, I'm sure they could. Uh, my understanding is, is they looked at the movie and were identified scenes that needed music and stood there with a stopwatch and timed them out and were able to tailor the songs themselves for kind of loosely what perhaps the uh, director was looking for. And I'm sure every one of these songs and it would not be that difficult that you know needs to be a minute longer okay we'll do a little bit of extra there and we'll make it a minute longer and uh, or 30 seconds longer and the fact that they were able to produce a dynamic range of material to service the director in his film yet when it came to actually being put out as a soundtrack album what became a very cohesive album that few people remember but still a very cohesive and a very strong album uh, to itself or in of itself and uh, Scared by Clouds the title track is just the first taste of it and it's a legitimate cool sounding you know it's it's if you like Pink Floyd you'll like this because that's what it is yeah it's a, I, I, I kind of thought of it as I was listening to it and making my notes I called it the synth wave track you didn't know you wanted um right i mean this this is in 1972 you could you could place this song in uh you know like in blade runner or something um or or put it in any kind of an 80s sci-fi movie and it would it would sound appropriate you know it was um a very forward sounding song for when it was released and recorded um and i think you're right that experimentation being limited by the amount of time they had in the studio to record this uh, album, uh, sort of reining that in a little bit. Um, 
a, a band going into the studio and having unlimited time, unlimited resources to just noodle around and, and find things out um, can be a benefit, but it can also be a curse. You can you can kind of go too far with it. And so having that limitation on you, uh, you know, hanging over your head, we got to get this done and, and move on to, you know, deliver it to a film company so that they can incorporate it into the into the film reels um you're 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 telling the band you can play around but only so much and i think that kept them uh focused on getting the songs done and recorded and sounding as good as they could without going too far into left field and i think that may have been a lesson that helped them in in recording their next album in dark side even though they had a ton of time to record dark side in the studio that lesson of you know, there, there's a moment where you rein it in and and you you make sure you're servicing the song rather than just playing around just for the sake of playing around. Well, I, it was very economical uh, as far as time is concerned because they were obviously busy with their lives and doing tours and uh, everything else that goes into being part of a company, so to speak, uh, or a band. Uh, and the, but they were able to pick up another uh, soundtrack gig, uh, and uh, they had learned from doing more from before, uh, no rhyme intended, that uh, they you know had a a uh, an assignment to create this music or create pieces of music for this out al- for this uh, film. And uh, which ultimately became a soundtrack album, uh, as far as their music was concerned. But they were very—it was an amazingly economical use of time to create these fully realized songs uh, and instrumental pieces. But you know, there's just, I mean, I haven't counted as how many have lyrics and you know how many are pure instrumental. But none of them really feel like they were just kind of maybe the last song notwithstanding, but thrown in there to finish the thing out. Uh, they created a... Even if this had not had been for a movie, this would be a legitimate Pink Floyd album, and kind of a novelty in terms of you know, song length, since they were uh, shortish cuts. But uh, it's pure Pink Floyd, I mean, from from the get-go, as it starts out and uh, obscured by clouds is is the the song itself within within the soundtrack album itself is a great way to begin the album have you and, uh, uh, are you like uh, are you familiar with uh, the career of guns and roses i am not really entirely from no i'm not not entirely i know who they are i, I know some of their hits I remember when they came up, but I really didn't follow them. Although I respect that they're that they were successful, and some of their songs actually are pretty good. But there was never a band that I really listened to to any great extent. So I, I bring them up because um, they uh, they they released an album in. Let me look it up real quick. They released an album in two thousand and seven. I'm sorry, 2008, they released an album called Chinese Democracy. And Chinese Democracy was the long-rumored new Guns N' Roses album, literally recorded over the span of 10 years. It took 10 years for this album to finally be released. And a lot of that had to do with um, 
you know, lineup changes within the band, but, you know, Axl Rose as the leader of Guns N' Roses was very much in charge of that project. And, and it's, it was a project that could not break out of the studio for a decade. Um, and finally, when it was released in 2008, uh, the response was very much a sort of a shrug of the shoulders, like, okay, um, that's what you spent all that time on. So I bring that up because it, I, I think about that whenever I think of uh, projects, you know, music projects that take a long time, or even you know, film projects that take a long time to produce. They don't always reflect the um, the time that was spent on them. And so you've got um, you've got "Obscured by Clouds" as a soundtrack album that took three weeks to record. Um, they literally went into the studio with a few musical ideas, but a lot of the song. Uh, a lot of the songs came together in that three-week period, and it's probably the strongest album front to back that we've listened to so far. Um, you know, metal might give it a run for its money, but you know, obscured. But metal was very much a project, especially Echoes, that took a long time to to piece together. I think if Obscured by Clouds was a project that they had a lot of time for. Um, you would have maybe not received uh, a product that was as strong front to back. I think the 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 avenues they would have taken in certain directions with experimentation would have maybe led them astray a little bit. I think maybe they would have patched some songs together and you would have gotten some longer, quote-unquote, epic songs along the lines of Echoes or Adam Hart Mother, where they take some of these separate ideas and blend them together into a single track. Um, and I think... I don't think that the album would have been as strong, you know, would, would, wouldn't have been as good, you know, as it is if they had had as much time to to maybe tinker with it as much. Um, what do you think? I think that's that's a legitimate take. Uh, I agree. Uh, there, you can reach a point to where it, too too much time beca- can become a problem, you know, or, or can affect the overall product to where it's just tailored and noodled with to the point to where it becomes irrelevant uh there is that risk that you take and a lot depends on how the obviously how the how the uh, listener you know their response to it the critical take once it's been released but i get the feeling uh and certainly with the the song obscured by clouds itself that as they were knocking these songs out and you know, whether it was try this, try that, recording it, I get the feeling that as each of these songs was being completed or starting to come together, that they were they were liking what they were hearing. Obviously, they liked it because they put it on the album. But it seems even these songs themselves, as they were being created, that uh, I I am. I can't imagine any other response as they were creating them, other than yeah, let's keep doing that. You know, that's uh, this is working. Yeah. And uh, and that you know, as when artists work on something, so to speak, it's uh, you know they're trying to satisfy themselves and trying to satisfy uh, an audience or whatever. But there's an internal. Does it work? Does it not work? You know, comedy. Is it funny or is it not funny? And it seems to me that as they were producing this, that they were going, yeah, this is working. Is it okay? Let's move on to the next track, or let's finish that track that we're still working on. And uh, it works from the get-go. It it 
know, it's there's nothing in there that makes you go, well, that was kind of a face plant, uh, because none of it is. It's all very legitimate, all good. Yeah, they probably, I, I get the feeling they would have released this as an album even without the the movie to tie into. I feel like some of this material, maybe they would have been you know developed slightly differently, but I think some of the musical ideas would have definitely found its way onto a Pink Floyd album, regardless of if it had um, uh, soundtrack status. Um, yeah, I think mo- most, uh, one, one other point I want to make is I think most of these songs, maybe all of them, could have ended up on metal had they been created at the time and all of that. Um, not to, in place of echoes, but there is, I mean, these are all good songs, interesting in their own way. Uh, some, you know, more interesting than others, but this is not to say any of them are bad because they're not. It's a, it's a, it's a very strong album. And, and there's even a couple of tracks on the album that, aren't featured in the film whether they were intended for the film or not i'm not sure but um you know the the music on the album includes a couple of cuts that uh are not taken from the film including the next one uh to my understanding uh when you're you're in, in when you're in jerry When you're, well, you're, you're correct, and I recognize the segue. It was a, it's an instrumental. It wasn't used in the film. Uh, all four of them, it's credited all four of them. And uh, it's, it's, when I listen to, going back to the last track, Obscured by Clouds, as it's coming to its end, I'm already anticipating how When You're In begins. And it's obviously a product of having listened to the album multiple times and liking it. But uh, I don't need to have to think about going, when you're in, how does that go? Oh, yeah. No, it's, uh, I know the song because the first, al- the first song on the album is distinct in its own way, uh, you know, ominous and foreboding. And then as it ends, it kicks into track two, when you're in, and it does so with a high punctuation. Yeah, this is uh, this is your wake up call. If uh, the droning synthesizer in Obscured by Clouds sort of lulled you into a sense of uh, complacency or relaxation or whatever, uh, when you're in, when it kicks in, when when Nick starts banging on those drums and uh, the song really wakes you up, uh, it, it it reminds me very much uh, of the Nile song from more right because you know where that song is placed on that album it, it comes after i believe cirrus minor is the opening track for for more and that's a very mellow uh song and then uh when you get to the next track which is the nile song like it, it is wake up it is hard rocking it is this is uh, an about face this is a turn I wouldn't say it's uh, you know I wouldn't say that when you're in is as drastic of a shift as the Nile song is to Cirrus Minor when you're in and obscured by clouds are almost uh, sister songs to me they're they're similar and I guess I don't know if it's uh, the, the timbre of both songs they fit together very well and I think you have a note too that they would perform these two tracks together as a single piece um in live shows 
Correct. Correct. That's uh, yeah. one thing I came across and went, well, that's that explains the order that it is on the album mm-hmm. between the title track, Obscured by Clouds, followed by track true, When You're In. They perform it live in the order that they are on the album. And I'm sure that went into their uh, placement on the album. You know, yeah. these two tracks go together. Or perhaps it was, we're going to put these tracks together, and they decided to do it that way live. Just the same, it works very well. It's a great, uh, when you're in, is like the door is kicked open, and uh, we're moving on to the next thing. Pay attention, because this is what we're doing. Uh, they also used uh, this, uh, these uh, two cuts for they for the Roland Petit and the Ballet National de Marseille at the uh, Sports Palace in Paris in early 1973, where you had the band up on a raised stage while ballet happened in the forefront, uh, which is interesting in of itself, but specific to when you're in, it was one of the cuts for that. And it's a, in relation to the title track, Obscured by Clouds, it takes us to the next phase of the album. Obviously, it's a piece of music for the movie, except it didn't end up in the movie. So it's just a piece unto itself following Obscured by Clouds. But it's a... it There's a very distinct uh, low melody going on. The melody itself is hard and strident it almost sounds a little bit like you know it has that quality of a kind of like when in the 40s and 50s you would have this musical motifs that would be indicative of uh, the native tribes uh, in uh, you know in, in the in the on the great plains when the settlers are crossing the the country and running into the local natives and they were the natives were portrayed as bad guys and you know there's definitely a minor or a sinister quality to the melody itself uh but uh, all that said to the listener it adds a degree of uh, i guess strident apprehension that's what i get from it but it's very interesting in that respect that you know that apprehension it becomes not so much heavier or anything like that because it kind of starts to get a little funky as things go on but it definitely is more in line with the kind of the darker pink floyd uh you know almost to an extent of of i don't know words fail me in that respect but there's a there's a darkness to it, a stridency. It's not light and airy or anything like that. Uh, yeah, but I, I, it, I think I, I think I follow you there. Like it, instrumental pieces um, in rock music and popular music, um, to be successful for me, they have to tell a story or or provide a, a an arc of emotion for the listener. Um, and and Pink Floyd is a band that has a lot of instrumental songs but also a lot of instrumental passages within songs that have lyrics and the instrumental passages and the instrumental songs almost work as 
um, they, they work as lyricless storytelling. And I think the one-two punch of Obscured by Clouds and When You're In, um, you know, putting those two tracks together, it's hard for me to separate them uh, in my mind. But, you know, taking those tracks together, I think I think you're hitting on something there where it's telling a story or at least it's, it's delivering your audience um, an emotional arc where you're, you know, you're opening with that droning synthesizer and some stabby guitar licks in between, you know, in between measures here and there. And you're sort of lulled into a sort of sense of, I hesitate to say security, but at least you're, you're, you're moving forward at a steady pace. And then when you're in kicks in and, and the story shifts from, relative safety and security into a more wild, a more um, foreboding uh, atmosphere or sound. You're, you're hearing with the second track or the second part of this opening section, you're hearing that you know the plot is, is thickening a little bit. You're, you're being taken someplace where it's not so safe and comfortable. Um, and a lot of that, I think, with the song itself has to do with um, with Nick Mason on this track. He's he's the star of this track for me because he is just just pounding the shit out of his drums. He is he's riding the cymbals. He's punching the bass drum. Uh, he's he's got a fill for every occasion. And it's not uh, Nick Mason. We've talked about it before. He's not a flashy drummer. He's not um, he, he's not gonna Keith Moon back there and, and go crazy. But on this song, um, and a lot of the hard rocking songs that Pink Floyd does, Nile song again comes to mind. Uh, it's really Nick Mason showcasing um, a rhythm and a drumming pattern and a drumming style that, um, because he's not known for it, when it happens, it it does tend to sort of shake the audience a little bit. Um, yeah, out of uh, wherever they yeah. Are. In structure, it's really kind of simple the song itself i mean as far as the repeated guitar phrases are concerned uh and it moves along and nick rides along with the guitar and as you put it very well you know he has a fill for every occasion and but it never gets stale in that respect you know talking about um uh, nick's drumming it's uh the fills that he does use are you know straight to the point and not overly frilly or, you know, they're, they're not weak and just there for the sake of filling the air. Uh, they are all nicely done and to the point. And with David's guitar, they carry it along. And I agree, Nick is kind of like the unsung so, uh, star of this, uh, of this particular cut. I mean, it's a, a very simple repeating uh, phrase of guitar, but it's... Uh, is, is used to very good effect and it's a this is a, the you know, the uh, obscured by clouds when you're in is a one-two punch uh, but it struck me while listening to it that they could have kicked off the album with this I'm not saying that they actually thought about that but they could have kicked off the album with this song uh, and I don't think it would have made a lot of difference. I like the one-two punch that they do have here, but when you're in has a an introductory introductory quality to it. That uh, you know announcement of this is the album and here we go uh, that they could have used, and I don't think the album would have suffered. But it's good that they 
set it up the way they did. It's like a, it works. A, a prototype for the way they would open the next two albums. Um, Dark Side opening with the sound collages and Speak to Me and Breathe kind of kicks in. Um, and then Shine On You Crazy Diamond has its its many parts and it, it, it is a slow burn, but when it, when it wakes up, it wakes up beautifully. Um, this is almost a prototype for that, I feel. Um, yeah, I can in- see that it what? was a, a quick side there. I, I guess I agree with you. And you can see the developing, uh, I guess, tool in the toolbox of having one passage set up to another song and doing that not just because, hey, we figured out this new trick, but doing it well and with care and with a degree of craftsmanship that is not trying not to get too confusing here, but it's craftsmanship that shows, but it shows to the extent that you don't really see it, if that makes sense. It's a very well jointed, uh, it, it joins the pieces well and to the point of it's cohesive. Yeah. I guess is what I'm trying to say. And this is an album. This is, a, I think, the first time that the band produced themselves. Um, partly as a necessity, they were doing this project quickly and on the side of a, another project. But um, I, I wonder how much of that was intentional, how much of it was happy accident. Like, oh, we put these two tracks back to back, and it really works as a as a as a piece that fl- one flows into the next. I wonder. Um, if they were particularly proud of themselves for finding that, and then that's what informs some of their their future decision making when it comes to album sequencing and you know blending the tracks together. Yeah, that's a. I don't it's know. It's actually a, a, <laughs> that's, a, that's a question to save for later. Should we ever get Nick Mason on the program, we'll ask him that, and of course he will say that he does not remember. But uh, uh, one other note that I neglected to mention when we were discussing the album itself. Uh, but while we're talking about Nick Mason, uh, Nick's thought on the album was he thought the album was sensational. And uh, I agree with him. Yeah, yeah, not it's the greatest thing ever, but it's definitely a cool album. And I think that uh, that assessment that he thought it was a, a sensational LP uh, carries forward in that there are a fair number of songs from this album that... Nick Mason with his Nick Mason Saucer Full of Secrets, they do play a few cuts from this album uh, as part of their uh, as part of their touring act, and uh, that speaks well to the album. That uh, you know these songs were played live, some of them, not much, uh, after they came out. You know after they produced them, and that. Uh, went away quickly when Dark Side of the Moon became such, such a success uh, and they really weren't played much at all or w- rarely and within frequency uh, and really only for the greater part in the few years following this album itself but that Nick Mason's Saucerful of Secrets shows, you know, considered this as part of the catalog to make use of uh, speaks to the songs themselves as opposed to just them being pre-Dark Side of the Moon. There's some great pieces on here, and 
uh, When You're In is part two of Obscured by Clouds, and it's 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 just strong material. Can't say it enough. Yeah, um, and, and after you know after that one-two punch, especially with with When You're In being such a such a barn burner and such a you know an up-tempo hard rocking um, uh, piece. The, the tone shifts into the next track. Um, Burning Bridges is next. Bridges burning gladly, and Burning Bridges has uh, a much different sound, a much different feel. This is a Wright Waters uh, co-writing uh, co uh, endeavor, which you don't see very much. You don't really see Rick and Roger... Uh, listed as collaborators, just the two of them, you know, outside of a full group collaboration, Rick and, and Roger did not have a lot of co-credits um, in their, in their history together. Uh, but Burning Bridges has uh, a very, it's very much an organ um, led piece. This, uh, this is a, I would imagine this is a Rick music, Roger lyrics situation. Uh, and David and Rick, share the lead vocal duties back and forth like they did on uh, on Echoes, uh, which is interesting that Roger wouldn't choose to sing his own words, but um, I think, understandably, he, he realized Gilmore and Wright had the better voice for the music that it was that the lyrics were being applied to. Uh, but yeah, Burning Bridges, to me, it's, it's very much a, 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 a calm-down piece. We've, we've, we've hit you with a, a one-two instrumental, um, that for the last two or three minutes you've been really sort of grabbed a hold of and, and meant to pay attention, this is, this is the album cooling a little bit from that. And, uh, you know, when you're, when you're writing music for a movie, for a film, you're, you're serving the movie that your uh, song is going to be applied to, but then you think about it as an album as well. Those ebbs and flows are there just like they would be in a movie. It's just a little bit more condensed. Um, but this is uh, this is very much Rick's piece um, until we get into the guitar work, and that's when I think uh, we mentioned at the beginning of the, the program today that this is David Gilmore's album that he sort of becomes front and center, at least musically, and he steals this song with his guitar work. He he takes over with some some soloing, and notably he he picks up that steel guitar. And you're hearing steel guitar playing that, if you're familiar with Dark Side of the Moon and some of the later work, but especially Dark Side, you start to hear that steel guitar, and that's where those connections start to get made. We're like, oh, this is that band, that band that is about to make Dark Side of the Moon. Here they are. They've shown up, and they're getting warmed up. Yeah, it's uh, David Gilmore is a standout, and this is definitely, I like the way you put that, there's an ebb and flow. This is definitely the ebb mm -hmm. after the first one-two punch, uh, but it's legitimate, it's good, and it's a very nice touch to the actual flow of the album itself. Uh, the song is slow, and, and as I was doing my notes, it struck me that it was uh, slow almost to the point of sappy. I mean, uh, Rick's uh, vocals, I mean, he harmonies with Dave, uh, but the vocals are just very soft and floating and very 
inoffensive and you know almost like an opium dream in that respect but it's it's slow and but the harmony is very pleasant and uh, very different from the you know the much more familiar you know hard edge Floyd that would come that would happen in years to come but David's guitar is I mean it seems to me it starts out as kind of a you know, corner lounge, you know, the, the guy in the corner who's just, uh, you know, twanging and moving moving along and just kind of going around the scales there. But it's a very slow kind of twangy solo until it starts, and still he gets that steel guitar sound going on. Uh, and then it takes on a new texture. And uh, it the song itself builds in that respect. It's very optimistic. Uh, but the real standout to me is, one, the great harmony between uh, David and Rick, uh, and secondary to that is the uh, David's guitar work on it. It's very distinct, and uh, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, David stabbing at the, at the strings, you know, twanging out notes. Uh, this is more of a relaxed... You know, it shows his range a bit more. It's more of a relaxed and uh, melancholy or a melancholic type of uh, guitar uh, with a lot of depth and feeling to it. And there's definitely, certainly with that Roadhouse steel guitar sound to it, there's definitely a kind of a country-western ethic as far as guitar work is concerned. Not so much the notes themselves, but how they're played. There is definitely a, a twanginess to it that, that stands out. But it's legitimate. It stands out well. It doesn't make you scratch your head going, why are they why did they go this way? It works very well within the confines of the song itself. It, it's a very optimistic kind of low ebb, uh, but it's a, you know, I guess for the listener, and certainly for me, after the one-two punch of the first two tracks, it's uh, we're floating along, and it's happy, and it's cool, and uh, you know, and then they, obviously they go to the next song, which we'll get to, but it's the, you can hear the decision making that's going on in that we've gone hard and we've kicked him in the gut. And now we're going to give the listener a chance to kind of sit back and reflect and to, you know, enjoy and float along, if I can uh, put it into words. Yeah. And uh, it's, you know, it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, little respite between uh, what everything else is going on. I'm not, uh, I'm not a big fan of, of, of the lyrics themselves. Um the uh, you know it, it it borders on sort of hippie poetry ish a little bit, um, and maybe that has to do with the the film itself and they're writing uh, lyrics that are either inspir- inspired by or meant to reflect what you're seeing on the screen, um, but also that still work on their own uh you know it does the lyrics don't particularly do anything for me it's uh it's not one that i'm going to sing along to i am glad that um david has the the opportunity to to shine a bit on here uh the the 
the slide guitar really it, it kicks in after a there, there's a little bit of a uh, a punch in by Nick Mason uh, to sort of announce that the slide guitar is arrived. Um, and it reminds me there's moments like that on Dark Side. Uh, I'm thinking particularly when uh, on Great Gig in the Sky, when the drums sort of announce the singer, the, the girls are, are kicking in, um, which is a great uh, a trick. And in, it's, it, it's used wonderfully there and here to, to, if you've been lulled by the song, you know, wake up and pay attention to this part. Um, I think without David's guitar work, I think the song kind of meanders a little bit. Um, it's it's one that would be a very easy one to dismiss if it didn't have that punch. But that's part of what makes Pink Floyd such a great band and what makes them uh, worthy of listening to and discussing is, is that they had all the pieces. They had a great guitar player who could lift a song like this? I, I'm not. I'm not trying to, you know, count the song out, uh, but it is. It, it is a track that benefits from having all the pieces of the band there together. If this was like a what they did on Umaguma, where each band member took their own track and worked on it on their own, if this was just Rick playing this music on organ, sort of on its own, I think it wouldn't be as interesting of a piece. But the band coming together and learning from that experiment and deciding not to do that again, uh, which was the, the result of the Umaguma experiment. They decided we're not doing that again. Um, I think that's a benefit. They have the, the full band contributing and, and the sum is greater than the parts. Yeah. Gilmore's guitar on this is the standout. It's, it, it's really what you're, you know, as the song begins and the guys are singing and it's nice and then it takes a breath, and then David Gilmore goes into his first solo, and it's, it, you know the guy is a, an incredible player, and uh, it shows on this here. I mean, the solo he does is reasonably simple, and I say that not as a guitar player, but it certainly isn't full of pyrotechnics or anything like that. But there's a lot of heart to it. And and going back to that word I keep on go, using, it's legitimate. It is a, none of it really feels contrived or anything like that. And without the solo, the song would feel very contrived. You know, certainly when you consider the lyrics, but even without it, uh, it would just be another, well, here's the low part of the wave, and we'll go to the high part in a moment. And, uh, you know, the, without the guitar being such a star without trying to rhyme uh, then this would just be one more you know it's a trick that they had done before uh, as far as that's concerned uh, and I guess it could be argued that the Rick and David singing and making a nice harmony and the song itself being kind of simple and, and floating in of itself with Dave's guitar stealing the show is kind of a trick unto itself, but I think that's really just kind of over analyzing what Pink, you know, Pink Floyd's capabilities, which at this stage certainly are not, uh, have not been uh, portrayed to the public in, to the extent that it's going to be in following albums. But it's all about decisions and you know what they 
were trying to accomplish or and and getting something that they liked and deciding to go with it. And uh, Gilmore could have played the solos on this uh, song any one of a number of different ways, but this was the the color, so to speak, of what they were of what they decided to go with, and it's legitimate. It sounds good. And it's a, you know, it works very well. And, you know, it's, you know, track three is just a continuation, not mechanically of tracks one and two, but as far as the album itself is concerned, the album itself is concerned, it's, it's a strong, even though it's a low ebb song, it's still a strong song in of itself. It, it does not feel like it's been, you know, we have this track and we may as well use it, so we're going to put it here. It was a track that they cut and went, yeah, we're going to use this. We like this, and I liked it too. Yeah, and you know, sequencing an album is is tricky business. You can you can have strong material that um, can be enhanced by its placement and sequencing, or you could go the opposite direction. And if you if you do it wrong, you can you can make what would have been a strong track sort of either get lost if you bury it too deep into the album or um, if you juxtapose it with tracks on either side that don't don't create a, a flow for the listener you can sort of jar your listener into sort of resenting a sound um, unintentionally and I think you know you're building this uh, you're building the soundtrack you're thinking about that um, you drone through the beginning you wake everybody up for the second part of the opening, and now you're back down into this valley. Ha ha, there's your pun. Uh, but you're back down into this sort of more calm waters. Um, going into the next track, The Gold, it's in the dot, dot, dot. Uh, we wake up again. Come on, my friends, let's make for the hills. Let's save this it's a it's a return to the um, hard rocking and up tempo and louder guitar driven music that we heard on When You're In. Uh, it it does a similar thing again. I'll reference the Nile song. It it wakes your audience up after a bit of a lull, and uh, I very much like this track. It's a it's a Gilmore Waters track, but this is again David Gilmore. Um, being focused, uh, or sorry, being um, being the focus. Uh, he's singing. He's he's playing a good. Um, in my mind, it sounds like almost a 1950s style rock rhythm, uh, like or even 1960s. It kind of has that um, sort of the Beatles playing uh, "I Want to Hold Your Hand" sort of sort of rhythm to it. Um, but it, I like this track a lot uh, because it is such a wake up after after Burning Bridges, where Burning Bridges lulls you. This one, this one wakes you back up. Yeah, it's uh, well, like the the previous track. This uh, this song, uh, the gold it's in the dot 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 was used in the movie, and to what effect I have no idea because again I did not watch the movie, but um, I thought this song had a very kind of Eagles country western rock sensibility to it, and it you know it's David uh, singing in, a, in his higher octave wave, but doesn't go falsetto, 
In fact, I can't remember any instance of David actually singing in falsetto, but he does have a high octave range that he can go to, and he uses it uh, to good effect in this in this song itself. Uh, I thought Nick does some great pounding on, on the on the song. Uh, you know, it's it's definitely a rock and roll song, and uh, his fills are reminding me of Ginger Baker. Uh, you know, the song itself is simple in that respect. It is a simple rock and roll tune, but uh, Dave's solo has kind of a pop, a pop rock sensibility to it. Um, it's even though David's vocals are on the high end and you know, kind of you know, sort of a ballad as he's singing it, uh, and simple in that respect. The groove between uh, Roger and David, and to be fair with Nick as well, I thought sounded a lot like, you know, Deep Purple could have done this song. That's what it seemed to me. Uh, it's definitely a simple, you know, rock and backbeat with, you know, good fills. Definitely a rock and roll track. Um, and I thought Roger's bass had a big round t- tone to it that was starting to get to the funkier edge of things. But it was a good rock song. Um, it crosses my mind that they maybe they considered putting this out as a single. I think it would have been, certainly for the era, a strong single. Uh, but they disagreed and did not go that direction. But uh, it's one of the rockier tunes on the album itself. Yeah, it, it has almost a glam rock flavor to it. Um, certainly. And for the time, for 1972, that would have—I I agree with you. This would have been a better single to release to try to get a the public interested in the album. I believe "What's the Deal" was the the lone single from this album released to radio for on airplay. But um, the goal that's in the is one that has a um, a familiar enough sound where you're not going to. I mean, it's certainly not Pink Floyd at its most out there and experimental it's certainly not a uh, saucer full of secrets or echoes or anything like that um it is the one of the more traditional sounding songs that i've heard the band uh put on to uh, an album up to this point even uh you know even lyrically it's it's fairly straightforward um it's it, it's I'm sure it's a connection with the film in some way. They're looking for whatever it is they're looking for, and they're going off to the hills. And uh, you know, David singing about he's he's only going to be there for uh, for for the journey itself, not necessarily the destination. But I, you know, I think this is one. Maybe it, maybe that is the reason why they didn't want to release it as a single. Maybe it is a little bit too on the nose, a little bit too direct and traditional for. Pink Floyd, uh, you know, Pink Floyd, I think throughout, especially this part of their career, I think the band had, um, had a finger on the pulse of how their audience perceived them and what was expected of them and the reputation that they had. Um, not to say that they're not going to do what they want to do no matter what anyway. They're not going to let an audience dictate to them how they're going to go about creating their own music. But I think in this sort of a situation, maybe if the gold is a stronger 
track, it may not be the best representation of Pink Floyd to put out there. Because if you if you hear this on the radio in 1972 and you think, oh, this is a you know a sort of David Bowie T Rex kind of sounding group, and then you pick up the album or you dive into the the back catalog and you find out, nope, that one track was a bit of an outlier. Uh, maybe just a rep from a representation standpoint, they didn't want this to be a track that led anyone astray. Yeah, it's definitely an outlier in that respect when measured against uh, their catalog coming up to this point. And, you know, except for maybe uh, some cuts on the wall that we won't talk about now, uh, this is definitely an outlier in terms of its accessibility in that it's a very accessible song uh, because it is does have that simple hard rock simplicity to it which was popular at the time and and arguably is still popular uh in in some circles but it's definitely for 1972 uh and years preceding with some other bands uh it's a you know it's rock and roll it is is a rock and roll song with very uh i guess you could say expected moments to it or predictable moments to it uh this is definitely one of the less unpredictable songs that big floyd has ever come out with i mean it's a three minute track and uh it rocks hard and the solos are where you expect the solos to be and the rhythm section is chugging along as you expect the rhythm section to do and uh beyond that there isn't a lot else going on except for you know the what's going on specific inside the itself, whether it's Dave's vocals, which are serve the song well, or it's Nick's, you know Ginger Baker fills or anything like that. Uh, you know the song is very simple in that regard and very un, I guess you could say Pink Floyd, in that respect. But it still Pink Floyd. You hear David's voice, you hear his guitar, and you know who the band is. But the song itself is very, very, I guess I'll use that word again. It's simple. It's very yeah. simple, but it is legit. It's, it's, it's good. It goes along with the album well, and it's certainly not a, a misfire in any way, shape, or form, even though it is kind of a, a right turn, a more uh, conservative turn as far as popular music of the era not so much Pink Floyd but popular radio you know radio fair it's it's one of the few tracks where you know David Gilmore very he comes very close to he, he's almost shredding <laughs> on his guitar right um, yeah certainly and, and not to say that he did he didn't have the chops to do that and it definitely is a style that um, he he uses infrequently um on pink floyd recordings but uh, certainly with great discretion yeah and, and when it happens it's it's oftentimes it's, it's it's within the character of a particular song um i'm thinking of like you know on the wall like in the flesh or something but uh you know gilmore has that reputation of he's he's uh as a soloist 
not so much the number of notes, but the the flavor of notes uh, that he can put into a solo and a lot of sustained notes and uh, deliberate, intentional playing within his solos. Here, this is one where he's he's letting his hair down a bit and he's sort of going to town. He's not Eddie Van Halen, but he is um, he is showing some speed and he's 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 his note count has increased per capita on this particular track. Yeah, it's it, it sounded to me like you know really like Deep Purple. Uh, I could I could see this song uh, or imagine the song being made by Pink Pur- uh, by by uh, Deep Purple, and uh, you know the the rhythm itself is very indicative of that. I guess you could say, and there and other 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 acts as well that were playing like this. I guess you could say, um, not talking about the singing, although there was some of that. But as far as the you know, the rhythm section and the lead guitar and the, and the the singing and all of that, it was very very, you know, I guess conservative in that it really was not off the the beaten path. It certainly wasn't a Pink Floyd taking us into a very different place. This was a very familiar place for the listener. Uh, certainly, if they had been listening to other music, and I'm sure Pink Floyd was aware of that as well. And I think that lends a lot of credence to your take that, you know, perhaps this was not a single because Pink Floyd didn't want to emphasize that sound uh, broadly to the population of listeners as being them, as you know, the population population of listeners would take a single. And I think there's a lot of uh, legitimacy to that take on it. But it uh, it's a hard rocking tune nonetheless, and uh, they were pleased with it. And as far as the flow of the album is concerned, it fits right in there nicely. It's, it's, it's a good follow-up. Uh, to Burning Bridges, and you know it's the 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 album itself just gets better and better, really as as it goes on. That's at least my you know gut overall feeling when I listen to it. It's you know one track is better than the next, and it goes well. It goes very well. Yeah, and and those those peaks and valleys, those ebbs and flows. Uh, it continues into the next track. What's the deal? What's uh, the deal? Uh, the deal. <laughs> What's uh, the deal? <laughs> so let me in from the cold Pink Floyd song titles, by the way. We've we've had a few on this show that we've enjoyed uh, saying out loud because I, you know, I think for a lot of people these deeper album cuts you don't have an opportunity to say the name of the track out loud very often you know people will talk about comfortably numb or wish you wish you were here or money or whatever it is um but how often do we get to say what's uh the deal as uh, an album track right yeah exactly and i really don't even even understand much less even tried to understand in as far as this track was concerned as to well it's called what's uh, the deal so what's uh, the deal it uh, it it's uh, it really never crossed my mind to try and tie this the sound title 
to the song itself to try and get some deeper understanding of it. Yeah, the the, the that, title is sometimes in the lyric. it's important, but not always. I'm it, sorry. Go ahead. I was just saying the the title is in the lyric, but it's buried deep in there, and it's not a particularly uh, uh, notable line in in the song. So to use it as the title is, you know, I, I think that's just them. It's just them being Pink Floyd for a minute and. Uh, Going back to, I'm thinking back to Adam Hart Mother and the different titles for the the different movements in Adam Hart Mother. You've got Breast Milky and Funky Dung. I, the band Pink Floyd does not take themselves too seriously, um, despite you know whatever maybe uh, ideas audiences may have about the seriousness of their work. Um, they did have a light side to them, and I think the song titles. Um, bear that out to some degree but what's the deal is a another ebb at least when we're talking about flow of the album if we're talking about um the overall sound of a song having uh having an effect on the audience this one brings brings the audience back down if they were feeling excited and jumpy as they were listening to the gold now the deal has come along to bring that into sort of an acoustic jazzy um sort of uh, piano-led piece that has a lot of acoustic guitar, has a lot of slide guitar, and David Gilmour with a very tender vocal delivery, um, especially coming off of the, the previous track. It's, uh, it's, it's Gilmour's range uh, as a vocalist. Uh, it's one of the reasons why he's on this album so much and would be... <clears throat> excuse me, would continue, I think, to be the voice of the group, at least when when tender feelings need to be communicated, Gilmore's your guy. Yeah, it's incredibly sentimental. It's uh, the song itself. It's it, almost schmaltzy in its sincerity. Uh, and you know, I, when I was listening to these tracks, I find myself certainly, and, and not just this album, but other tracks as well, I find myself because I can't help but do it because I've heard the other albums, I can't help but find myself hearing songs that would, parts of songs that would be echoed later on, no pun intended, uh, and in respect to this song, What's uh, the Deal? Uh, you know, David's guitar is very homey and sentimental in it, uh, but the song has... Um, well, without the guitar, the song has kind of a wall feel to it, and I can't really specifically tie it to any one specific song from the wall, uh, and I'm not going to go there entirely because I don't want to talk about the wall. We'll get to that in good time, but it has, without the, that homey sentimental guitar, there's a wall feel to it, uh, but uh, it's a you know, David's uh, part of it is, you know, the, the, there's another twangy David Gilmore guitar solo. Uh, Rick has a very nice piano solo to it. Uh, and really, there's not much more to it, uh, except to say that, you know, at root itself, the song itself, it's, you know, clearly to me, it's an homage to working and touring and missing family and gee is this life all worth it 
Well, let's just get on with it, and uh, and it's worth it because you know I'll need what I have at home when I'm old, and it's a low ebb from the from uh, the the rocking the gold. It's in the this is the we've gone back to the low side of things, and the audience can uh, kick back and relax a little bit. Yeah, not again. Not having seen the film, not sure where this uh, track fits into the story. How much of the lyrics, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, are connected with what's being shown on screen? But you know, taken simply as a a, a, a track in the Pink Floyd um, catalog, it's um, it's a prototype. Wish you were here. It's a prototype of you know that that feeling of you know not not so much emptiness but of separation yeah or a feeling that you know what you were promised or what you thought was going to be your your lot in life or your situation didn't bear the fruit that you thought it was going to um and that's a theme that has a lot of legs to stand on especially with Pink Floyd, it, it is a theme that crops up many, many times. And if yeah, well, Obscured it was... by Clouds is kind of like the prototype Pink Floyd album for the Pink Floyd sound that most people are accustomed to, this is a, a, a prototype lyric dealing with a subject matter that would get explored a lot in, in future albums. Well, given the writers, I mean, Roger Waters' hand is in there, and Gilmore was also credited as a writer on it. Uh, I think as far as the writing is concerned, and I don't know this unless we ever get David Gilmore on the program, haha. But because uh, I'd, I'd like to ask him that, but I think uh, Gilmore's contribution to the song had a lot more to do with the music than the lyrical content. But I could be wrong, uh, and I often often am, and or are. I often am wrong, but uh, it's as far as the song itself is concerned, it's uh, you know, there's not really a lot going on to discuss specific to the song itself. It is certainly greater than the sum of its parts. It has a you know, very nice sound to it, and you know it's as as mentioned, it's that low before the next rise, or after the the previous high. But it's you know it's the life on the road lament and the looking at life in itself lament, and maybe not so much as a lament, but a uh, you know, just you know, taking stock of things. You know, where am I at, and where am I going? And that's been the subject of songs and poetry and everything else. You know, it's you know, pure human condition in that respect. Yeah, if you if you have a very comfortable, satisfied life, you uh, you tend not to make the greatest art. It's just uh, it's something right. that's rung true throughout history, right? Yeah, right. I agree entirely. Uh, I'm not sure what else uh, to say about what's uh, the deal, except for in in broad terms, I like it. It fits well with the album. The album is moving forwards, and it's uh, this. That was what's uh, the deal, part of it. Uh, the song is in the film. 
but beyond that, um, yeah, I liked Rick's nice. Rick, I liked Rick's piano solo, uh, but really, really not much more stands out to me. Yeah, the the last thing I'll say about it is um, this is a track that has been revived um, in recent years uh, by David Gilmore on his uh, tour of about 15, 16 years ago. Uh, as he was touring around with his band, they they brought this track back out for um, a, another go around, and you can catch that performance on. Uh, the, David has a couple of live concert um, films, so you know it's one that, uh, as as I'm sure he was getting ready for his tour, and he was tired of playing some of the uh, the old Pink Floyd standards. He probably dug through the catalog and the song list and said, oh, what's the deal? Yeah, I remember liking that one. Let's let's do that one live. And it's a good Gilmore showcase. Yeah, with that respect, it is a, uh, a that was the word I was going to use, it's a, it's a good Gilmore sh- showcase because uh, the singing, you know, obviously it's within his range and he's capable of singing it. And, uh, but it's a, you know, it's, it's a good showcase for his voice, and the guitar uh, is sentimental. And I am sure that as he was piecing together uh, that tour and was looking for songs for its own ebb and flow, uh, the concert's ebb and flow, that this fit in very nicely. And uh, you know, it's one that goes way back, and that would please a lot of the. Uh, uh, the older fans, and but certainly uh, the song itself has its own legs and strengths to stand on. And so it's, I did not see that tour, but I'm sure it worked very nicely within it. It's, it's a very nice song, but uh, really nothing, you know, nothing that's going to blow your doors off, and nor was it designed to do that. Well, and that'll take us to the final track on side A, which is called Mud Men. I imagine that there is a scene in the film with Mud Men. My take on that, looking at the... Uh, for, for when I remember from the trailer I looked at, there is a scene where you have these uh, local natives who are covered in mud and they're wearing these very scary-looking mud-colored spooky masks, and uh, you know, all part of the you know the overall. Uh, I guess it's almost uh, a trope in that respect of the Europeans, uh, you know, out amongst the natives and becoming one with them and being subjected to all these new, bizarre, and exotic rituals and, you know, scary, not sure what is, you know, is this safe? What are we doing here? Sort of thing. There were natives that were covered in mud and looked kind of muddy. And, uh, I think as far as the title is concerned that this was really more for, you know, it was a working title. We need yeah. something for the scene with the guys who are covered in mud. <laughs> okay, we'll call this Mud Men. And uh, it's an instrumental. It's in the film. Um, uh, but it's uh, kind of surprisingly uh, good. I mean, I liked it. 
And uh, and maybe I shouldn't say surprisingly good because Pink Floyd really, with you know some exceptions here and there, is you know, often good, if not very, very good. But I thought the um, in instrumental itself that the beginning was reminiscent of the lyrical part of Echoes. You know, the first lyrical part, you know, overhead the albatross. Uh, it reminded me a lot of that. And uh, whether they purposefully went to that well or whether it was a happy accident or whether they even noticed, I didn't know, no idea. But I noticed it. And uh, But it was fine. You know, it didn't seem to me that they were, you know, being cheap about it or being lazy. Um, it, it's a... I like what they did with it, and uh, what are your first thoughts on this on Mudman? Well, you know, I'm, I'm looking on. I'm looking at. Uh, I, I, I typed in La Valley Mudmen into my Google image search, and yep, those are Mudmen, all right, uh, <laughs> or some uh, some Europeans' idea of what Mud Mudmen should look like. I, I suppose. Right. Um, yeah, I think you might be right. This was probably a, a piece of music that they they made for the film. Then uh, someone asked for a title and they didn't have one, so they labeled the box "Mud Men" to signify what part of the film this went to, and they just left it at that. Um, it, musically, it sounds to me like a. Uh, I, I noticed right away that it it had a lot of similarity to the earlier track on the side, "Burning Bridges." Um, it was a bit slower than that track. Uh, the rhythm seemed a little bit different, but overall it had a very similar feel uh, musically to that. That um, I don't know if that was intentional or if it was just um, a, a variation on an idea and they had sort of two pieces of music born out of a, a single idea. The, the thing that caught my eye is the, uh, the songwriting credit goes to Wright and Gilmore. Um, and that's again. That's not a songwriting combination that you see credited very often. In fact, you wouldn't see it again. Just the two of them on a song uh, writing credit until uh, the the Division Bell in 1994. So obviously, Rick and David collaborate a lot, um, but it was always within the context of the band or or group uh, collaborations. The fact that this is credited just the two of them. Uh, where Burning Bridges earlier was credited to Wright and Waters. This is credited to Wright and Gilmore. So, you know, this is maybe, again, Wright's musical idea, since the two tracks sound so similar, uh, remove Waters' contribution, which was the lyrics for Burning Bridges, and insert Gilmore's contribution, which is the the musical, um, the, the guitar soloing and the sort of the musical ideas being uh, generated. Um, that's where that that songwriting credit comes from. But I agree with you that the the song does have some some sound alike moments to echoes. I caught a few seconds here and there in the soloing that sounded very much like Dark Side uh, solos. Uh, whether it's the equipment uh, sort of being tuned to the same um, settings uh, that he would use later on, or that he was already experimenting with as they were getting the Dark Side project underway. He was using that and playing around with those settings to kind of get a feel for how it would sound on a record or how it would sound in a song. But yeah, there were a couple of moments from like, oh, that could be, you know, the guitar solo from Time or or Money or something like that. It had a it had a 
sort of a you know where this album fits in the catalog between echoes and dark side this track i think more than the rest has that feeling of what if echoes and dark side were melted together this kind of what that sounds like to me i liked how uh contrary to the ebb and flow uh that was going on uh over the previous tracks that uh mudmen is also a slow yeah, and perhaps it was there to, uh, uh, it was put in as a slow piece uh, to close out uh, side A. Uh, but it's uh, it's legitimate how it works. I mean, as far as uh, you know, Rick's piano is almost a continuation from the previous track into the beginning of Mudmen. Uh, it's uh, it's a, it's. It's almost painfully slow. <laughs> it's, uh, not, but it, it's still legitimate. It's still good. Uh, but Nick is, you know, just tapping along. And, I mean, I could imagine him stretching out his arms and going, ah, yeah, okay, this, uh, well, keep time. They don't have me doing much else. And uh, if we play this live, I'll have time to get up and get a drink. Because <laughs> it's, uh, it's just a... You know, a soft and you know, lulling, almost a lullaby kind of, uh, you know, without vocals, of course, but a, a lullaby feeling to it. Um, you know, it, as far as Rick's piano is concerned, it goes to the familiar choral. Rick's, you know, Rick writes uh, choral organ, and uh, it builds to David's solo. Which was, uh, and I agree, very tonally familiar uh, with this David Gilmore sound that would become very familiar to millions of people over the fo- uh, following years. Um, uh, it's kind of a thin solo, per se. I mean, there isn't a lot of filigree on it or anything like that. And it's done to good effect as it's been done before and will be done over future albums rick uh goes from his you know his his uh choral uh organ to uh into the synthesizer that pulses up and down which is a nice bookend you know side a bookend from the uh, pulsing of the beginning of the side but it's a bed for David Gilmore to do his solo over it, and uh, or solos because there's a couple of them, and uh, it's used to good effect. And uh, on the the final solo, as David is uh, playing guitar uh, and the synthesizer is pulsing, you know, Rick. Uh, kind of gets on the piano and kind of dots and dabs his keys along with the pulsing of the synthesizer to add a little bit of uh, texture to that. And uh, Nick, who had been keeping such a slow time, uh, gets a chance to do some fills to go to the next, uh, to the, as I noted down, the, the uh, his uh, more earnest solo, over Rick's choral organ, but Rick does have a chance to do a fill. Uh, excuse me, Nick has that chance to do a fill, and uh, he does. Uh, not a lot going on on the bass side of things, but uh, it really, you know, it doesn't lack for that. You know, uh, it's a 
nice instrumental piece to close out side A. Uh, and, you know, as to what else is going on, you know, really can't say too much. I, I liked it. It's good. It's not a huge standout like pretty much uh, everything on this album. It's not blowing your doors off or anything like that. But uh, I'm sure as it was used in the film, it served the interests of the film. And, uh, and it's a good, you know, solid cut to have on the album. Yeah, and again, it's Obscured by Clouds very much feels like the prototype for Dark Side of the Moon era, Pink Floyd. This, um, the guitar work from, from Gilmore, you know, he, as, as far as I understand, he would either knock a solo out in one or maybe two takes very quickly, or he would labor over it and piece together sections from many, many, many takes. So there, there was no sort of in-between. It was either it, it came very quickly and very easily, or he had to be very thoughtful and very um, very intentional with, with the soloing he was doing. This project we've mentioned many times, it was a quick project for them. So I imagine this was more along the lines of the first route where plug in your gear and let's play something and all right, that's, that's, that'll do. Um, the fact that the, the guitar sounds so much like what we would hear on Dark Side of the Moon has me thinking that that, that pre-production work he was doing before they took a break to go record this album, this soundtrack, he probably already had in his head the idea of this is how I want my guitar to sound. Let's, let's bang out a few solos with these settings and uh, what you hear is the the prototype version of what would become some of his best guitar work um, from a standpoint of his solos on the next album where he has maybe more time to sit and think about what he wants to play versus, hey, we've got to plug this in and let's go. Um, it's again, it's another example of Obscured by Clouds being that prototype of what you know the Pink Floyd sound would become later on. Yeah, and it works very nicely uh, with that in that well, it, it is so overshadowed by Dark Side of the Moon, uh, but there is so much to hear within the album itself, even though they are three to four minute tracks, there is so much to hear within it where you're going, oh, okay, yeah, that's uh, there's there's some Pink Floyd there, go, or not Pink Floyd, it is Pink Floyd, but there's some Dark Side of the Moon going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is very, very, uh, it, it's obvious that, you know, that how that came about given the timing and the, the goals of this particular record, but when it was made and what they were doing in the studio besides this soundtrack album. And uh, it just uh, amazes me still that they were ob- able to knock out such a quality album uh, and in many ways very much a Pink Floyd album but in very many ways really kind of different from all the Pink Floyd that had come before certainly in length of time you know, the, as far as the tracks are concerned but it still is there's so much going on there uh, for such a what seems to be kind of a minimalist effort, you know. Certainly, the songs are are spare when compared against against the rest of the catalog. Uh, 
you know, Piper of the Gates of Dawn notwithstanding, which was in a whole different era entirely. But the songs themselves are, they're, they're great songs. They're very interesting. And uh, I'm not going to say they're easy listening, although I could hear some of the stuff on easy listening if, I, you know, in this day and age, if I looked hard enough. Uh, but it's very easy listening to the ear, uh, but it's still interesting, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasant um, album overall. It's a pleasant side A to listen to. It's not a particularly challenging listen, uh, where many of the previous albums had their challenging sections. Uh, some were good. Some were not quite where... Um, to my ear, they sh- they probably would have liked to have been, but um, this is the this is the album that you know even the more soundtrack had its challenging sections. There's really not much on Obscured by Clouds that is going to make a listener uncomfortable or feel like I have to pay attention and figure out what the band is doing. Um, and that's not to say that's not taking away anything from the album. It's not a, a weakness of the album. It's just a an observation that this is this is probably the most straightforward collection of songs that we've heard from the band so far. Yeah, I'd agree with that entirely. Uh, certainly, since uh, the Piper of Gates of Dawn, uh, you know, this is a collection of three to four, with one exception, five minute songs. Uh, and uh, they begin, there's a middle, there's an end, but all of them have parts that are le- legitimately, there's that word again, they're legitimately placed, and uh, none of them is a clunker. You know, none of them, you know, some I like more than others, but none of them makes me go, you know, they just had to fill this thing out. You know, they had an assignment to do a soundtrack for a motion picture, they were looking at scenes, and they had obviously had material, and more importantly, had a range of sounds and, I guess you could say, studio and instrument technique to rely upon as they pieced this thing together or pieced each track together for whatever scene they were going to try and you know, color onto, scene of the film that is. And what the result of that was, uh, certainly was side A, and on our next program when we talk about side B, uh, incidentally also turned out to be a really decent, and that's not to you know, sell it short or anything like that, but a really decent album. And uh, yep, I love this album. I remember when I first heard it uh, going... Man, this is a. Why did I never hear this before? How, how come all my friends, older siblings, didn't tell me how awesome this album was uh, when I was a little kid? Uh, and it's because they were all uh, completely overwhelmed and impressed, and understandably so, with metal and Dark Side of the Moon and the, you know the cuts that are on those two albums. That this has kind of got. You know, I think that it was in record stores. It was probably put in the soundtrack section of of the stores, so people just didn't come across it. Although, uh, as we'll discuss on side B, there were tracks that, or there was a track that did get some radio play, and that helped the band. But uh, not much more to say about side A, unless you'd like to say something else. 
I will just say that with that, the needle will go up and we'll pause to flip the record over. We'll please, uh, if you would please, look out for our next episode where we'll go through side B. We'd love to hear your feedback, so leave us a comment and rate the episode. Until next time, this is Al. And this is Jerry. On the Vinyl Sideways podcast. See you soon and shine on.